Welcome to the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. The ACA is the peak body representing chiropractors in Australia. Hosted by Dr. Anthony Coxon, these podcasts explore the science, art, philosophy, and politics of chiropractic, as well as reviewing the latest research and discussing how chiropractors can strive for excellence in practice. Welcome to the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. I'm your podcast host, Anthony Coxon. Not all chiropractors list low back pain as the number one reason people seek out their care. If you've completed a study in functional neurology, chances are your clientele is quite different to the standard chiropractic practice. Our guest today on the ACA podcast is Dr. Genevieve <clears throat> excuse me, Damaraj. Now, Jen certainly does not fit the standard chiropractor mold. She's one of the many fabulous presenters at the upcoming ACA conference in Sydney in October. If you haven't already registered for that event, just go onto the ACA website at chiro.org.au to find out more. Now, Jen's talk is titled Above the Atlas, which is all about understanding the hemispheric model and the importance of developmental neurology. So we thought we would get Jen on the podcast just to get your appetite wet in the lead up to the conference. Just before we start, though, a bit of background on Jen. Uh, she's a pediatric chiropractor with a master's in chiropractic peds and also has a fellowship in the functional neurology with childhood neurodevelopmental disorders. Her practice is called Nurturing Brain Potential, and it was established using the Malilo method and digital therapy to help children with ADHD, autism, and learning disabilities. Jen has also co-authored with Dr. Robert Malilo uh, to write a children's book, about primitive reflexes and neuroplasticity called Ollie the Octopus and His Magnificent Brain. Hi, Jen, and welcome to the ACA podcast. Thank you. First of all, thank you so much for having me on. Um, it's a pleasure to be on this, and I'm so excited about speaking at the ACA conference. That is awesome. Perhaps you could start by giving our listeners a snapshot of what um, a day in your practice might look like. Okay, so um, I have a separate practice, separate business um, called Nurturing Brain, separate to my chiropractic practice. So the contrast is like day and night. So quite often I work at the chiropractors in the morning and then I race across to Nurturing Brain um, at a separate centre. I usually have to change my outfits. I've, I've got sneakers on. I'm ready to battle for the day. Um, the, the, the common child of the most, the clientele that we normally see are your um Nonverbal autistic kids, so generally between three years and 10 years. So um, when they come in, they're kicking, they're screaming. Um, I've had my shirt rip. I've had my earrings broken. Um, I've been punched. I've had been kicked. Um, so it's a very different scenario to working in a pediatric practice. The thing about these kids is that um, when we do our exam, when I, what I learned from doing my master's in peds with Dr. Neil Davis is that observation is key. So with these kids, because a lot of the examination with Melilla method, I, it's CNP, could not perform because right. they're kicking and they're screaming. So as soon as they walk in, I'm already assessing. I'm assessing their gait. I'm assessing how they're tiptoeing. Um, I'm looking at their relationship with their carer, um, how they're going. I'm looking at tone of face um, while they're screaming. I've got a pen light and I'm looking to their mouth. I'm looking at their tongue. I'm looking at lots of different clues because with these kids, you've got to be fast. The thing about these kids is that, um, as I say to my team, they're like angry kittens. 
they hiss, they scratch, they bite because they're dialing into their fear mode or their fear paralysis or their fight flight system. So they can't help themselves. And the thing about this is we realize that down the track, as, as we start to work with them, their area of the brain, the right prefrontal cortex starts to develop, which is self-regulation, self-soothing and self-calming. So I know this is only temporary. So when the kids come in, initially it's biting, fighting, kicking, screaming, and I know they will calm down as the visits go by. But it's um, definitely much different to my, my chiropractice. Absolutely, and to most chiropractors' practice. So obviously uh, to get to this level, there's two things. One is um, an absolute commitment to really wanting to care for um, these types of uh, children, but also I guess uh, the upskilling that's required because um, there's one thing to provide chiropractic care to an autistic child, but it's another thing altogether to really be monitoring um, the development of that child and possibly, hopefully, having a positive influence on the development of that child. What were the uh, key moments in your journey and your education to really get you to the point where you decided, yes, this is where I want to go and this is what I need to get there? Thank you. Um, so I heard Dr. Rob Melillo speak in 2016 at the Connecting Kids Symposium. And when I heard him speak, I was like, oh, this is this is the re this is what we need because um, I did my master's in kids with learning issues and I found chiropractic helped to a certain degree but there was a big gray area of these kids coming in that I wasn't helping with chiropractic care. I have to say I was a bit reluctant to go and study because I just finished eight years of my master's and was not on the was not on the plan. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought I've got to do this. So I started my journey with doing the online Melillo method um, childhood neurodevelopment course. I'm the sort of person that when I do something, it has to be 110. So I actually traveled to Barcelona to do the autism module with Dr. Rob because I felt that we needed some face-to-face -face contact. Yeah. Um, the following year, I actually did clinical cases in Barcelona once again. And this time, I actually was lucky enough to shadow Dr. Rob Melillo to Bulgaria. This is where he sees the most severe autistic kids. So I got a hands-on approach on how he handles his kids. And at the end of that, I'm saying, I said to him, I'm going to open up. This is what I need to do. And he's like, go for it. He said, you know, do do what you need. Um, and also, I was lucky enough, to, we had another conference in Amsterdam. And that's when I um, shadowed Dr. Carl Daigle. So Dr. Carl Daigle is my mentor. And he's taken Dr. Rob Melillo's method and has used amazing technology and has gone way above. So he taught me some techniques that was amazing. So with the course, it's online and you can do face-to-face -face in Dallas at the moment. Um, but it took me maybe two and a half years to do the whole course. But it was wow. amazing. So for those who haven't um, studied Robert Malilo or, or um, Ted Carrick uh, stuff before, tell us a little bit about hemispherisy. This is obviously a, a big part of your talk at the seminar. What is it and, and why might it be important? Okay, so... With the complexity theory, there's two um, two things that are required for a complex brain. One of it is differentiation. So you need smaller parts of the brain to be able to do different things. Um, so the more parts, the more complex the brain is. The other thing is needed is integration of these networks. So the human brain is the most highly differentiated and laterized brain on the planet. And it's the most complex what I mean by letterization is that the right brain does certain things and has certain skills and the left brain has certain skills and, and does certain um, certain things. 
So this allows us to have a more complex brain. Um, at a TED talk, they were talking about artificial intelligence and they were trying to get this um, artificial intelligent arm to pick up a glass of water. And they found that this arm kept overshooting, was throwing water in the face. It couldn't judge the amount of water there was in the cup. Now, a five-year-old child would just pick up the cup. The brain would adjust exactly how much volume is in the cup and they'd be able to get that cup to the mouth. So that tells us how amazing our brains are, that we can do all these things without even thinking twice. Now, if we have a lack of differentiation, it reflects a lack of maturation of the brain. So the brain hasn't quite matured. So the brain development has a specific blueprint. So everything should be done at a certain time. And if it deviates from normal, then there is um, issues that come on further on from the brain not developing like it should. The thing about um, the brain being right and left was actually first discovered in the 1800s. We've all heard of Broca and Wernicke. So what happened then, they were studying um, strokes in certain people. And what they found, if someone had a stroke at a certain area, which is now Broca's and Wernicke's area, um, then it would affect speech. But if the stroke happened at the same side on the right side of the brain, that the speech wasn't affected. So this led on a journey for a neuroscientist to actually study the brain and realize there is a difference between the right and the left brain. Now, our brain, uh, the right brain starts developing in the womb. So it starts and for the first two or three years, the right brain develops. Then we tend to switch to the left brain and it develops different skills for the next two or three years. Now, the brain switches between right brain development and left brain development. And then there's specialization of the right area and the left brain. The way the brain develops, you can see there is many times where we can have a miscommunication or a lack of development. So for the brain to develop, we need sensory input and motor input to shape the brain into um, a more active developed brain. So then we realize that people have a right dominance or a left dominance with the brain development. So generally we see that we do have have a difference in hemispheres and the reason for that is so that we have an amazing complex brain that can do so many things. Um, you were good enough to share with me a, a paper from Robert Malilo, speaking of Malilo earlier, um, called the, uh, it was uh, published in the Frontiers uh, of Neurology uh, earlier this year. Uh, it was all about retained primitive reflexes and autistic spectrum disorder. And it was a really great read. And I'll actually include this paper in with the podcast out to members because it's worth having a read over. One of the things that I found really interesting in that was the uh, idea about how the brain uh, develops, uh, and particularly uh, in autistic children, that manual de dexterity and motor control is less effective. And that's, I guess, understandable, but particularly less effective with the left hand, suggesting the a right hemisphere problem. Now, you did mention before about the... Um, uh, the frontal prefrontal cortex on the right side being the one that's often affected. Is this what your finding is, or what your uh, what your observations have been in practice? That that's the side of the brain that's most affected with autistic children. Absolutely. Um, when we do uh, an examination with a child, we don't take whatever diagnosis they come with. We we look at our examination and we look at that to determine whether it's a right brain weakness or a left brain weakness. Because occasionally we can have um, global delay. So it'll be both sides of the brain that haven't matured. So we check and see where our examination is at. But generally um, for ASD kids, there are 
most of the kids I see are nonverbal. There's a delay in language. Um, the kids that come in, they don't have any eye contact. Social engagement is an issue. Um, this is what Dr. Rob Malillo refers to as functional disconnection syndrome. Generally, they find there's a, a there's a integrating networks is not as good on the right side. So generally we see with an ASD kid, and this is not in concrete because we do see changes, um, is a is a weak right hemisphere. That, that, that is what we see. You, you mentioned uh, before about the right hemisphere and, and the challenges of working with children on the run, uh, which is really much what you need to do when you're assessing a, um, a, an autistic child. What are some of the key sort of right hemisphere problems um, or how might they present in an assessment? Okay, so generally the right hemisphere weakness is uh, poor um, nonverbal communication. They don't get the big picture. Um, they can't read facial expressions. So if mum's angry or sad, they don't get it. They don't hear the tone of voice. So raising your tone is useless with these kids because it doesn't make a difference. They can't inhibit thoughts, action and motion. Um, they have poor balance and spatial skills. And generally, with the kids that we see that are um, autistic with ASD, they don't feel connected to their body. So Dr. Ron Melillo wrote a book called Disconnected Kids. And what it is, is the reason these kids don't actually feel their body. They don't feel, they don't get the same feelings that we do. Um, so a lot of these kids, it's not so much the ability to speak. It's more the fact that they don't see the need to communicate. So in my nurturing brain, we're very lucky in the fact that we've had 22 nonverbal kids um, speak. Oh, kids and adults as well. So, um, and wow. with, yeah, so it's amazing. So one of the kids, one of the adults that came in was 32 nonverbal. So when he first came in, um, he wouldn't look in the eye. He looked at the ground. There was no tone. There was no facial expression. And in that time, we've got him to actually start to laugh, to feel emotions. So he started to feel his body first before speech came into play. So now he's he's still coming in um, and he's he's speaking. It's amazing. Yeah, that's, that's a great story. Um, I know one of the other things that um, Malolo talks a lot about is retained primitive reflexes. And in that paper we were talking about before, um, he presents the idea that's not only uh, are these retained reflexes a possible early sign of uh, autistic spectrum disorder, but that they also may have adverse effect on development of postural reflexes and their trajectory going forward. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Okay, so these these reflexes are basically our survival reflexes. So they're meant to help us during the birth process. So we have the spinal gland to get through the birth canal. Um, the primary function of this is to help the infant move and react to the environment. As the motor system matures, these reflexes should what we call integrate or they shouldn't be there. Um, so kids, when they're developing, should be moving, they should be feeding. Um, these reflexes are helping to orientate them and protect the child. So the brain is basically built bottom up. So we have these reflexes. And how I explain to kids is that when we're learning to ride a bike, we have training wheels. So we're riding a bike and we've got these training wheels, but we can't do tricks and we can't ride fast. So once the training wheels are removed, then you can do tricks and the bike can ride faster. So these primitive reflexes are like training wheels of our brain. So they help us get to certain stages. And once you get to that stage, they are not required and not needed. So if they're still retained, like training, training wheels on a bike, they're going to impede our development or what we can and can't do. So 
very much um, retain reflexes holds the brain back in many, many ways of development. So that's why we look at them. And they've been spoken about for a long time. But the correlation between primitive reflexes and autism, as Dr. Rob is doing his research on, um, there's only there's only like about 56 papers worldwide relating correlating primitive reflexes and autism, which is why he's studying and do, releasing papers on that. I expect you'll probably go to, through this in a bit more detail in your talk, but can you just touch on now just what are some of the key primitive uh, or retained primitive reflexes and how they might present in practice? Absolutely. So the first one, I'm, I'm, I'm going to leave a lot of it for my talk. So yes. I'm going to talk about the moral reflex. So the moral reflex is the startle reflex. So that should have gone uh, between the ages two and four months. So that's the, the, when you have a loud noise and the baby startles. So it's a startle reflex. But if it's retained, what happens is, is that child is hypersensitive, reactive, uh, poor impulse control. They get motion sickness because their vestibular system hasn't developed. Um, they're timid, very sensitive to light and sound. So these are the kids you see coming into your center with their hands over their ears, or they will have those headphones because they can't handle loud sounds. Mm. Now, that's related mm. to the stapedius, um reflex, which is in your ear with the stapedius little bone. Um, what happens is when the moral reflex integrates, that reflex comes into action and that actually dampens sound. So for these kids, that dampening hasn't started. So right. they're very, right. very reactive. So little they just like change um, or surprises. Now we see the moral reflex in adults as well who have them retained. So this is your adults that have yeah. that free floating anxiety all the time. They don't like change. They like things to be status quo. They don't like going to new places. So we see that in adults as well. Now the reflexes, Dr. Roll focuses on about eight primitive reflexes. There are so many, but we focus on the key ones. And I will go through most of this in my talk. Um, so we're looking at the rooting reflex. We're looking at spinal gland. We're looking at asymmetrical tonic neck reflex. And then we're also looking at the vestibular reflexes, your tonic labyrinth reflex and your um, symmetrical tonic neck reflex. So I will go through all of those in the at ACA so that you'll just have to come. <laughs> I will definitely look forward to it. I'm thinking about um, my kids now are well into their 20s, but uh, when they were uh, just very young toddlers, um, we took them along to Jimbaroo. That was something that a lot of um, my contemporaries uh, were doing because I think back then clinicians, educators and parents all recognised the value of developing motor control and balance and, and the impact that that would potentially have on cognitive function and academic performance. So that this link between um, the developing brain and developing from bottom, bottom up and postural reflex, reflexes kicking in and overriding um, primitive um, reflexes, I think has been around for quite a while, obviously, or, or the general thinking about that. But how much further do you think this understanding of hemispheric laterality and retained primitive reflexes is taking this understanding? Okay, so you did an amazing thing taking your kids to Jimbaroo. So I'm sure their balance and cognition is much, much improved because of that. Um, the thing about Jimbaroo, it's it's movement. And I also like, I don't know whether your kids had it, but we had the parachute at the end of Jimbaroo. Yes, And that's did. really great for inhibiting the moral reflex. So um, Jimbaroo is phenomenal. So what we're finding is kids aren't moving like they used to. They're not moving um, and they're not. So it's very important that we recognise that Movement and cognition and spatial exploration, so allowing kids to explore, um, is massive in brain development. 
when we know that the if a child has retained reflexes and checking their hemisphere city, it's basically a window into a developing brain. So that's a way we can check and see where they're at. So I wish more kids were doing Jimbaroo and I wish it was just in, an important part of development because it's so vital, so vital for brain development. You mentioned earlier, um, I think you said 56 papers on retained primitive reflexes with um with neurological development disorders. And I guess Malilo does concede this in his paper that saying that there's only little or, or very little uh, evidence around reflex-based interventions. So as a practitioner, having a conversation with parents who are considering beginning care with you, how do you broach that in terms of their expectations and the evidence around the care that you provide? Okay, so with... Um... Being evidence-based, I have a lot of clients that come in that are pediatricians, there are doctors, um, and and my first thought is that oh, because I'm not I'm not left brain orientated, so I'm like okay, let's throw as much research as I can on them, um, because during Dr. Rob Malillo's course, we go through every single section, and there's always research articles to back up what we're doing. If we're studying letterization, then he'll have research papers on this is what it is. But at the end of the day, what you want to do is you're going to provide hope and you can provide hope with neuroplasticity. Mm. So when you start to explain to parents about developmental neurology, Anthony, they get it. They yeah. understand yeah. it. And then when you look like in my um, examination room, I've got charts about primitive reflexes and these are the sign of symptoms of a retained reflexes. And I go to them, your child's got this reflex that's retained these are the signs and symptoms. And majority of the time, 99.9, they go, that's my child, Yeah, you know, and then they get that. And I think when you explain um, the basis of bottom-up development, um, parents get it. Um, and also the other thing as well, we're very much a referral-based centre um, and they've and the results, I think, speak for themselves. Yeah, A lot of the parents come in going because so-and-so sent me because their child was nonverbal and he's speaking or, you know, someone has a traumatic brain injury and I know they're walking, like, you know, they're taking some steps. Um, they they get to know the results. And I think results, as in chiropractic, results speaks for themselves. So yes. parents come in and what they want to know as they're doing chiropractic is, can you help my child? Mm. And it's exactly the same in chiropractic. All they want to know is that hope, um, can you help my child? Is yep. basically the answer they want. So all the research in the world, and I've learned through um, working with them, it's, it's great to have the research because it makes it evidence-based. But for a parent, like even a pediatrician coming in, I was like, oh, no, I've got to sign intelligent. I've got to read up all these papers when she comes in. And all she wanted to know is, can you help my child? And yeah. the other thing she said is, Jen, these reflexes, we learned them. Mm. I know how to do a Babinski. I know how to test all these reflexes. But the moment they reach 12 months, we don't even look at them yeah. as a pediatrician. You know, and she's a pediatrician and she was very honest with me. She said, we don't even look at them and we don't even regard them. And that's the thing. And that's why we need to change that attitude is to say that, yes, primitive retained primitive reflexes are important and it's actually a window into brain development and mm. we can see so much from there. So it's it's how we can help, how we can provide hope. And the biggest thing is the brain's neuroplastic. No one knows how much that child can improve. We don't know. All we know is that if we know the pathways that are underdeveloped, if we can stimulate those pathways and get them firing, you know, there is no hope to see it. Like there's no ceiling on hope. It's And that's the thing we tell our parents. And we do that as chiropractors as well. We don't know. The body has an incredible ability to heal. 
So we just remove the interference. And the same with doing functional neurology. We're removing the interference that's stopping that brain from developing. Mm. I, I think that's there's no ceiling on hope. I love that. And I think that's a, a great spot to finish our podcast and our chat today with Jen. Thank you so much for your time uh, this morning. Thank you so much. It's, um, I can't wait to see everyone at um, the ACA conference. I think it's. And I hope be, you come to my talk. Uh, I'll definitely <laughs> be there, guaranteed. I'll be uh, up front and center. Um, thank you again, and yeah, well done. It'll be great. I've got no doubt about it. Well, thank that's you it. so much. That's it for me. Thanks for listening. I hope this podcast has been helpful in your quest for excellence. I look forward to chatting with you again on our next ACA podcast. <laughs>